0: You're listening to audio from the Regenerate Podcast, a ministry of River City Church in Lewiston, Idaho. For more information about Regenerate, visit rivercitychurch.us. Tonight, we're going to be in the Book of Judges, so everybody, uh, get your Bibles out, and we are going to turn to the Book of Judges. Has anybody here read the Book of Judges before? Just sorry, curiosity. Okay. Anybody know what to do with it? because no. that is a totally different question <laughs> but tonight uh, we're gonna be learning about a couple of significant figures from the book of Judges and we're gonna be doing something unique this semester that we have never done in regenerate and it's this you guys are gonna have homework <sighs> no I already have enough of that um, I know that's I know that you guys are college students and you're able to carry a heavy load now this homework is very simple it's just reading it's reading the Word of God and so every week I'm going to challenge you to read ahead to the next section of Scripture that we're going to be teaching from because this is one of the first times that we're going through a book that's long enough to where we're not going to be able to address every single word of this book. I mean, hopefully we'll be able to discuss it in our regroups and really get into the meat and potatoes of everything that we're doing. But we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to speak what He wants to speak to us through this book. How many believe that God can speak in a million different ways from the same passage? like one, just a, a few sentences can, can direct somebody's life in a completely different direction than somebody else. And, uh, and however God works it out in His sovereignty, He makes it so that we, all those paths are leading us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Somebody say amen. That's who our faith is all about. And remember, if somebody's preaching and regenerate you have to give them props, okay? So if somebody is preaching and it speaks to your soul, you've got to say something like... Amen. Well, I'm, you know, <laughs> or... <laughs> amen. Amen or amen. Yeah, <laughs> so those are always great. Um, so we're going to be talking about the straight and narrow. Everybody say the straight and narrow. The straight and narrow, straight and narrow tonight. We're going to be in Judges chapter 1. Just to give you a little bit of context before you read this, I, I am going to read a lot tonight, so I'm actually not, not going to preach as much tonight. But... Uh, I do want to give you guys a little bit of context here. This is uh, this book is uh, it takes place over a long period of time. We're talking like six hundred years of history covered in one book. So what happened is in the Book of Genesis, mankind screwed up their relationship with God. This is what the Bible teaches, right? Totally screwed it up. And so as a result, sin comes into the world. It poisons everything. It brings death and destruction. And as a result, human beings, although they were originally created in God's image and designed to be in connection and relationship with Him, they were separated from Him by this wall of sin that nobody could get over, right? And everyone's born into it, and everybody's born with it. Uh, I, I have uh, two wonderful, amazing children, and uh, they need Jesus just as much as an adult. Uh, because, there they are. Yep, And uh, they are the cutest little girls ever, Lainey and I have a maid. But... Uh, <laughs> Either way, people were born into sin, right? We can't help that. So how do we address this problem? Well, God had a plan. He had a wonderful plan in his heart. And so he told this man named Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. Genesis 12. He tells him this. And so he says, and Abraham trusts him. And it says he believes God and God counts it to him as Righteousness. So, generations later, a lot of things happen to Abraham's family. They get thrown into slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then they get delivered from that place because the other part of his promise is this. I'm going to fulfill this promise in, this, in a particular place. I want you to come to this place called the land of Canaan. It's where the modern nation state of Israel is located, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's uh, uh, known for their oranges now just so you know i don't know if there was before if if a big deal back then but anyway it's a big it's a big export um anyway this this is where they are so what happens is god performs all these amazing mighty miracles and maybe you've read the story of exodus where god drops 10 plagues on the egyptians and the people of israel are let out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and they go into the wilderness and then they get into the wilderness and they come to the edge of the promised land the land that god promised them and they send 12 spies into the land and they're like dude Let's find out what this land is about. Is it flowing with milk and honey like God promised us? Is this the land? Is this really going to be ours? The spies come back and they all say, dude, it's amazing. It's like, dude, like, it's, it, it, it's just, there's like an old folk song talking about like uh, the, the Big Rock Candy. It's like the Big Rock Candy Mountain, you know, where it's just like, the birds and the bees and the lemonade springs and the, where the bluebird sings and cigarette trees. And I don't know why that's a lyric, uh, but anyway, um, so it's an old folk song about it, written by hobos. Anyway, um, it was a place that they're like, we they never even dreamed of this, but there's a big problem. The people that live there are way more advanced than we are. They have better technology. They have armored cities. They have, they have chariots. We don't even have anything. We walk around on foot and, and like, we don't stand a chance. There was only two of those people that said, No, this is God's will for us. God wants this for us. He promised it for us. It's ours. Let's go get it. Their names were Joshua, son of Nun. That is not to say that he didn't have a father. His father's name was Nun. N U N. Neither was his father a nun, like he was not part of a nunnery. Uh, but his, uh, his father's name was Nun. Joshua, son of Nun, and then Caleb, son of Tephanim. And So these two men were full of faith. And as a result, God rewarded them by saying, you too are going to see the promised land. The rest of your generation will never see it. And not even Moses himself got to see the promised land. He died before he ever got there. And so now they've entered into the promised land. And through Joshua's leadership, they enter into the promised land. He, he becomes the new leader after Moses. And they annihilate their enemies. And it's these, there's these incredible stories of supernatural victory and miraculous deliverance over and over. And now they've settled and this is like at the very tail end of the book of Joshua at the beginning of Judges. We begin to see what has happened to the people of Israel, and we're going to talk about Caleb and Joshua a little bit tonight. And i want to come at it from uh, this idea of the straight and narrow. Uh, I remember speaking of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. One of my like favorite movies is super weird. It's called um, oh, oh, Brother Where Art Thou? It's set in the deep south, and there's a scene uh, where this guy, where these guys are like going through the woods. And the, down by the river, there's a preach man, and he's like baptizing people, and people are coming down in white, you know, dressed in white, and they're singing, Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Good song, right? Yeah. Oh, brothers, let's go down, down in the river too. as I went down. Anyway, oh, great song. Anyway, uh, great old folk song. But one of the guys goes down, he, he sees the preacher, and he, just, and he just runs into the water. And then the preacher man baptizes him, and he comes up and he says, Well, boys, now these guys are escaped convicts. Well, boys, that's it. From now on, here on out, it's, it's a straight and narrow. From here on out, the preacher said that God done washed all my sins and transgressions away. Even that time I knocked over that Piggly Wiggly down at Bigsby. I thought he said he was innocent of those charges. Oh. Well, I lied. And that transgression's been, co- been covered, too. Y'all, come on in, boys. The water's fine. And then one of the other guys goes down and gets baptized. It's ridiculous. But he's like, it's straight and narrow from here on out. Straight and narrow. Somebody say straight and narrow. Straight and narrow. These two men walked a path that was straight and narrow. And I'm going to explain what that means. But first, let's read the word a little bit. And then we're just going to pack it a little bit. We have no way of getting through all of this tonight. But we are going to explore some of it. Are you guys ready for this? Okay, I don't think you're ready for this, but let's try it, because Judges is going to be probably the most intense thing you've ever read, just so you know. Here we go. Judges, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, After the death of Joshua, okay, we know who Joshua was. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Now they're speaking as though they're brothers, but actually these are two massive people groups, two tribes, thousands of people. So Simeon went with him. Verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated th- tw- uh, sorry 10,000 of them at Bezek. They fought Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut him off and, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Woo. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. Uh, When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for... A field, And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do, you, uh, what do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with his people from, the Jude, from Judah, from the city of Palms, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Hold on to that. Now the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city, and called its name Luz. And this is, that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan in its villages, or Tanakh in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, or the inhabitants of, Iblirn, of Iblium in its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol so that the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the descendants of the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Avklad or of Achzib or of Helba or of Ephik or of Rehob so that the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the ascent of Akrib, Akrib from, or Ak- Akrabim from Selah and upward. Chapter 2. So pay, just pay attention here. So first chapter 1. They've arrived in the land. They're fighting against the Canaanites. And one thing we need to keep in mind here is many of these Canaanites are not being completely driven out, but rather are being allowed to stay and just put into forced labor. And that's an important note to hold on to. And also, there was something important about Caleb that we're going to come back to. But let's look at chapter two. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bahim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bahim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, so apparently we're rewinding a little bit, the people of Israel went east to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, there's a lot of things here, a lot of storytelling happening here, a lot of very important history, because this is your story. God, as we peer into the book of Judges, as we seek to understand why you preserve these stories for us, we know that these words are breathed out by you, 2 Timothy 3.16. We know that these words are your words for us, so God... As I preach, let my words be your words, God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer in whom we trust. And everybody said, amen. amen, amen. The straight and narrow, the straight and narrow. You know, you know what's interesting about this, this whole opening to the book of Judges? It's, it sets the stage for everything else that's going to come. So as we study the book of Judges, you're going to see a, a pattern that's happening. And actually, uh, that, that pattern begins with rebellion, right? You see the people, they serve other gods, they rebel against God, they worship Ashtaroth, they worship Baal, and we'll learn more about what those are as well. They worship these false gods that aren't real gods, and so as a result, what happens is God is steadily growing angry, angry with them. Now, we know that the Bible teaches that God is long-suffering, right? It takes a long time for, God to, uh, for God's anger to build up to the point where he has to do something, but, so he's, but God is steadily like watching them sin And eventually he finally delivers them over to oppressors So they rebel, And then they feel bad So then they repent And they say, oh God, oh God, please help us Is this story sounding familiar yet? Right, you know, something difficult happens So the, the really hard thing happens And then you go, oh God, oh God, please help me yeah, I know that you're out there somewhere I'm going to pray a prayer of desperation And so then you repent Oh, And then things seem to get better And then you repeat then, you fall, then they fall back into worship of other gods. And this cycle will be repeated for six centuries throughout the book of Judges. And each time the spiral happens, you're going to see it get worse and worse and worse. And you guys are like, why are we learning from this book? Like, this sounds miserable, right? But actually, there's some really just, like, awesome stories in here. Just, like, amazing. Like, they should make a movie out of it, but it would definitely be rated R kind of stories. Um, and they're... <laughs> Um, these are, but these are really intense stories designed to make a really intense point. And sometimes when God is speaking to us, he has to make a point in an intense way because it needs to be something that wakes us up! Because a lot of times we can grow complacent and comfortable in the way that we live our lives. And it takes stories like this, and it takes the Holy Spirit illuminating certain things for us until we finally realize what it means to follow Jesus. So one of the, re- one of the first things I thought of you know, as, you know, as I'm studying this passage... Uh, it's uh, Matthew uh, I think it's Matthew 7 Jesus said um, that the, he says uh, uh, that there's two paths he describes two pathways right he says the, way is, uh, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few that's what Jesus told his disciples the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you have been a Christian who's been trying to follow their convictions, you know that sometimes following God or, or trying to obey what the Holy Spirit tells you to do, whether it's written in the word, it's hard. It's hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I'm not going to tell you that if you, if you just give your life to Jesus, you know, I've heard so many preachers say, if you give your life to Jesus, like you're going to experience joy like you've never experienced before, peace like you've never experienced before, yes, But the only way that you understand that joy and that peace is when it comes to an impossible situation. It's only when you're faced with the impossibility with the difficulty that seems too great to overcome, that's when you realize, oh, I do have joy. Oh, I do have peace. It's residing deep inside of me. And that does not mean that that you're not going to struggle with things. It does not mean you're not going to be sad. It does not mean you're not going to struggle with sin or doing things that are immoral just because you have God in your life. God is in the business of shaping us. So, two paths, right? One is easy, one's hard. Jesus makes it clear. And we see these paths illustrated perfectly in these first couple chapters. So, I'm just gonna, tonight, I'm just going to talk about why following God is hard. That's the first point. Why is following God so hard? Well, when we look at the first uh, few verses there, look at this. It requires, First of all, we understand that it requires fighting a good fight, right? Because in verses 1 through 20, the people of Israel, they have to fight a lot of battles, right? Is this is how I fight my battles. Right. Um, with some of the slight love. I love that song. What does it mean? Um, is this is how I fight my battles. Um, fighting your battles, okay? One of the things that's interesting in this, and some people, right off the gate, if you notice this, you're like, ah, uh, this is Really violent. If you are paying attention in those first few sentences, first few chapters, you're probably like, "This is super violent. Like a lot of people died. They put an entire city to the edge of the sword. They burned it. They like did all these. Like, the, this sounds awful. Now, why is it that they would do this? Well, because fight, in order to accomplish God's will, sometimes it requires fighting a good fight. See, now in Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 through 17, Jesus or God commanded His people to eradicate the people of Canaan. You're like, that sounds so awful. Why would God command them to kill all of them? Uh, and I'm not saying that there's, I have an easy answer for it, but there's a couple things that, that, are, that we have to keep in mind. Number one, you have to remember, whenever you're reading a warfare narrative in the Old Testament, God was in the process of preparing a place for his people. They had to be protected. They had to be in a place that was free from conflict. They had to be in a place where they were not going to be threatened and crushed because they were a small nation. God knew that in order for them to establish themselves in the promised land, they would have to completely eradicate the people that were there. Secondly, it was God's sovereign will. He even says, I believe he says to Moses, that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so he's saying, when you guys get there, you guys are going to be the instrument of my judgment. And you go, I don't, and some of you guys go, I don't like that. I don't like God judging people. And to which I would say, I would way rather have God judging people than people judging people. God is the perfect judge. And I'm not going to question his, his decision there. But, I do, but what I do know is this. God was desperately trying. He knew that this people had to survive. Israel had to survive. And so they had to radically eradicate anybody who would lead them astray from him. He knew that the people that were in this land were going to become a snare to them if they allowed them to stay and to influence them. And, spoiler alert, that's exactly what happens. Because what's the first thing they do? Do they eradicate every single person in the land? No. They leave some of them. They think, we can handle these ones, though. There's like 50 of them over here. We'll We'll just make them slaves. We'll just make them work for us for free, and that'll be fine. What well, they didn't realize is that idolatry, replacing God with something less than Him, is a poison that is eaten. It is, it's more like, more, more like, not really a poison, more like a virus that is easily transferable. Worse than COVID. You know what I'm saying? So it requires fighting. So why is it hard to fight, to follow God sometimes? It requires a good fight. They knew that they had to drive out their enemies. There's some of you here like where, of course, what might come to mind is Ephesians 6 when Paul talks about how We have a real fight as well, but it's in the spiritual. There are principalities and powers that work in this world that are not from God. Some of you are like, that sounds like uh, spooky, like horror movie stuff. Is that really what Christians believe? We believe that God is spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. We believe there are other spirits that are not from God. And that when we allow those things to influence our lives, we're walking in step with something that is not from God and actually allowing ourselves to be influenced by something that's demonic. God commanded Israel to drive them out completely, but they failed to obey, right? Failed completely. You guys can stay. You guys might be good workers, so we're going to keep you. The rest of you guys will kill. Uh, here's the second reason. Why, why do we not want to follow God sometimes? Because it requires sacrifice. And honestly, we, raise your hand if you're lazy. If you didn't raise your hand, it's because you're too lazy to raise your hand. So, uh, <laughs> jokes on you. No. Um, be, wait, so I feel lazy, like, all the time, right? We want to just be comfortable, and it requires sacrifice. But did you notice the hero that appeared in verse, in, in chapter 1? Did you guys notice this guy? Caleb, right? Caleb, the guy who entered the promised land with Joshua. The, the OG Caleb. This is the dude. This is one of the two dudes left who saw what God did in Egypt. There was only two of them left. It was Joshua and it was Caleb. They're like, we remember what God did in Egypt. None of y'all were there. We were there. We were young men. And by the way, Caleb is... He's a boss. Like, if you read the end of the book of Joshua, he's like, hey, Joshua, um, can I have that hill country over there? And he's like, I don't know, man. You're pretty old. He's like, dude, I can, I can swing with the best of I can I can run rings around these kids. And I'm like 80. And he's like, all right, dude. He's like, a, he's, like an, he's like a biker. You don't mess with that dude. And so he's just like, yeah, go for it. And he does it, right? And this so what's interesting, though, is it take, requires sacrifice. Caleb could have taken that land by himself. He makes it clear And Joshua, at the end of Joshua, that he's able to do it. But instead, he stops and goes, actually, you know what would be better? is if I allowed another person to rise to this challenge so that they can become a leader in their own right. I'm going to sacrifice my glory, and I'm going to sacrifice the thing that I want so that somebody else can have what I believe is for me. And so selflessly, Caleb says, hey, somebody else want to take this? In fact, I'll sweeten the deal. My daughter will be, uh, my, I will give my daughter's hand in marriage. Maybe it's one of those protective dads, you know. I'll give my daughter's hand, to, hand in marriage to whoever takes this hill country. And Othniel, which, awkwardly, is his nephew, <laughs> is like, I'll do it. Which I was like, which, I don't know if that makes anybody else uncomfortable. But you're like, so he did it for his cousin? Ew, right? It was a different time, people. Okay, so it was a very different time. So he goes and he takes the hill country. And uh, he could have taken the lead, but he wanted Othniel to rise up to the occasion. So we know why it's hard to follow God sometimes. It requires sacrifice. It requires fighting a good fight. And sometimes you just get tired. But so then why is following yourself easier? That's the second point. This is why following yourself is easier. (laughs) Because um, it's easier. First of all, it's easier to accommodate than engage. So many, in verses 21 through 36, we see so many examples of where this people group was still allowed to live there, and this people group was still allowed to live there, and these people, they, they couldn't really get rid of them, so they tried, but then they gave up because they had iron chariots, and so we just left them. It's easier, it's easier to accommodate than to engage, so, so because it takes work, right? I used to live in a bachelor pad. I've used this as a sermon illustration before, but it works for so many different things. I once spilled some soup on the floor, and it was tomato soup, so it looks like a freaking murder scene, you know, just like just red everywhere. And I just left it. And uh, I mean, I tried to sponge it up a little bit, and then we just kind of left it. And we didn't replace the carpet. We didn't give a, We didn't even get a rug to cover it. Like that's that's how rugged this was. We were bachelors, and so we were just like, I guess we just leave it and just live with it, right? Uh, and who knows, you know, maybe there's like black mold in that spot now. I don't know. The point is, <laughs> the point is that like. When you, it's a lot easier to, when something bad takes root in your life, when the enemy takes root in your life, it's actually, it feels a lot easier to accommodate than to engage that enemy in a fight. Here's what I mean. Let me, let me illustrate actually out of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, Paul says, um, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? Uh, in other words, keep short accounts with people. Don't let, don't let the sun go down on your anger and let no opportunity uh, let there be no opportunity in your life for the devil. Some some translations say that, that don't give the devil a foothold in your life. So how does that play out? Well, it starts off as something small. A friend says something to you that offends you. And at first you're just irritated. But then they do something else that irritates you. And the irritation moves to anger. And eventually, if they keep it up and you never actually, you don't address them. You don't engage the problem. You just accommodate. You go, well, you know, whatever. It's, I don't want to address that because then I'd have to like talk about feelings and stuff and I don't want to do that. So then that anger starts to fester and eventually that anger becomes bitterness. And eventually that bitterness destroys your friendship and you never get to have that person in your life anymore and they get pushed away all because you let something take root in you. That's why you keep short accounts with people. That's why you don't accommodate like the people of Israel did for their enemies. Because this would come back to hurt them badly later on. So it's easier to accommodate than engage. It's also easy to feel bad. It's easy to feel bad. When you do something wrong or when something bad happens in your life, it's really easy to feel bad. How many of you guys have felt bad in the last month? It's wintertime, right? Seasonal depression, all that kind of stuff. So if you have felt bad, it's easy to feel bad. It's, nobody needs to tell you to feel bad, really. You know what I mean? Like if something bad happens to you, now some of you guys are just like you live in a bubble and you're positive all the time. I love you. so And I want to hang out with you because I need, we need people like you in our lives. But for many of us, it's very easy to feel bad about things. Feel bad about life. Feel bad about what's going on spiritually in our lives. Feeling guilty for not spending our time with God. Feeling stupid for what we spent our money on. Feeling like an idiot because of a relationship choice that we made. We can beat ourselves up. We can spend time feeling bad. But in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says that you can feel bad, right? Without actually doing... And it may not even have the power to change your life. If you just stick with feeling bad then you're just, it's not, it doesn't have the power to change you. You have to have repentance. Worldly grief produces death. But repent, and also, if you repent, you'll notice that in, in uh, verses 21 through 26 of Judges 1, it says the people, you know, they get delivered over their enemies, and so they cry out, right? But then, you know what? It's easy. Repentance based on punishment can only last so long. Going, oh man, I felt really bad, and I feel like God was disciplining me for something that I did wrong. So now I feel really bad. Uh, I don't want that to happen to me again. So I'll feel bad about it, and I'll try to change. You know how long that's going to last? Not very. First John four eighteen says, "The perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Fear-based behavior modification is not the answer. It is not the answer for following God, for living a life that's transformed." We want to break, because really what we're talking about in the book of Judges are cycles. You want to break cycles in your life. I think we're going to learn a lot about that in Judges. But if you want to break cycles, it's going to take more than just feeling bad about something that you did. And it's easy. And here's the other part. You look at Judges 2, uh, 6 through 10. It's really, you can see this. And, and uh, it, that it's really easy to forget when you don't have reminders. Because it says, look at, look at, look at right there in verse 10. Uh, it says the people did it was evil, they abandoned God, but, at, but before that, who was it that had died? In verse 10. Did you guys catch that? Joshua. Joshua, Joshua was, the, was OG, right? And Joshua and Caleb were the OG guys. And so he had seen the miracles of God. He had lived a long, fulfilling, amazing, victorious life. He had seen God move in ways that other people only dreamed of. And maybe you come from a family where, of people who have seen God move in ways that you could only dream of. But then it's easy to forget. And maybe maybe Joshua assumed too much about the people. Maybe he assumed that they understood who God was, but they didn't actually. We don't know. And and maybe that's a little too much preacher speculation. I hate it when preachers speculate. Like, you know what I think? You know, I don't care what I don't care. You shouldn't care what I think. You should care what the word says. Anyway, um, it's easy to forget though when you don't have reminders. The people, and as soon as Joshua died, it says a new generation rose up that did not know the Lord. They didn't know it. That's a parenting failure. That's a leadership failure. That is a a personal failure on the parts of those people because they're responsible for not chasing after the God of their ancestors as well. That's a massive failure. But it's easy to forget when you don't have reminders. These people, like Joshua and Caleb, they can look back and go, you know why I'm walking the straight and narrow? Why I'm obeying the law of God? Because he gave us the law. I was there when God, think about this. I was there when God gave us the law. That's Joshua. He he was right there when God gave uh, gave the people of Israel the law. He saw the miraculous power of God. He saw the deliverance from Egypt. He saw the water out of the rock. He saw the provision in the wilderness. He saw all of that. And this new generation, they are raised up in comfort and they go, eh, Uh, I guess God's a thing. I don't know. How many times do we feel like that? Generations before us, they experienced God, but for us, it's eh. It's really easy to forget. So where's the good news? Here's why God is still good when you don't follow him. And this is the good news in Judges. First of all, in Judges 2, 2, 1 through 5, we learn that God speaks. He continues to speak. Did you know that God is still speaking to you? Even when you are acting like an idiot, (laughs) God is still speaking to you? Even when you sin and do things wrong, God is still speaking to you? He hasn't stopped talking to you because he still desires you. He still wants you to be in relationship with him. He still loves you. And so he continues to speak to Israel. Then he also even raises up the right kind of people. In 2.11-19, through 19, we see how he raised up judges, right? And so he raises up leaders that will bring the people back into alignment with his will. Why does he have to have them in line with his will so that he, they can feel good about themselves? No, because God can only use perfect people. No, but he needed that to preserve this people to prepare them for the promise. Remember that. So it's like I need them to, to adhere to this covenant so I can bless them and so that I can prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. So he raises up these judges to lead the people. And then Hebrews twelve six says that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. So he speaks, he raises the right people, and he also disciplines those he loves. So maybe you're going through a season of discipline in your life. I know I've been through a season of discipline in my life recently. And knowing that, we know that he tests hearts. And this is the beautiful thing. In fact, I got to look at verse 18 again. It's worth looking at. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Listen to this. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Even when you're acting a fool, even when you're being an idiot, even if you're running completely the opposite way from God, he still hears your cries and he still has mercy on you. He still will come after you. He's still chasing after you. He's not going to break relationship with you because you broke it off with him. He's not like a flighty boyfriend or something like that. God is the husband of the church, his bride. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you just because you might have made a mistake. God has mercy on you time and time and time again. You know how I know? Because the ultimate proof came hundreds of years after this. We're talking like a thousand years later, Jesus of Nazareth comes and he dies on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven Because and he ra- was raised up from the dead three days later, uh, thereby effectively uh, vindicating the fact that he alone is God. He is the image of the Father and it's an image of mercy. That's why Jesus could hang on the cross and he could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Have pity on these poor people And you're going, all power, how could he do that? He's acting like he's in a position of power when he's stripped naked and hanging up on a cross. Because in relinquishing his power unto death, Jesus was reversing its power. And Jesus could still have mercy on these people. He still was crying out for mercy in his last moments. Think about that. Crying out for mercy, not for himself, not for the pain to be assuaged, but for you. God has always been a God of mercy. He does not give up. And the thing is, God hears you. That's the big thing. God hears you. He responds to suffering with mercy, even though he has every right not to. Isn't God good? And that is what the book of Judges is about. We're going to be looking at breaking cycles. We're going to be looking at growth. We're going to be looking at decline. We're going to be looking at the amazing ways that God moves throughout time and history and and throughout our lives. And God, and let me just tell you guys tonight, God is not done with you. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody here. Regardless of what season you're in, God is still listening to you with an ear of mercy. He is the God of all hope. And the reason is, His mercy is endless. The Bible says in Psalms that His love never fails. It will never fail fail you. So even when you're like these people, God is still with you and your failure. Somebody got to say amen to that. Amen. Alright, so, um, let's get to our questions. And uh, these are the ones that we have t- for tonight. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from the Regenerate Podcast. And if you enjoyed our content, please feel free to subscribe. If you have any questions or would like to send us feedback, send us an email at regeneratelcsc at gmail We'd love to hear from you. Regenerate, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time.